Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, August the 25th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. On Tuesday of this week, I had a, I thought, very interesting conversation with the British journalist Sinclair Mackay uh, on his new book about Berlin. It's a wonderful book. Um, it's a classic, I think, an instant classic. Berlin, life and death in the city at the center of the world. And one of the arguments I think he makes of why Berlin, at least 20th century Berlin, uh, was a city in the center of the world was because, of course, it was the place that the East and the West clashed. It was the heart the beating heart of the Cold War. Uh, some of the best literature of the Cold War was set in Berlin. Uh, Le Carre's The Spy That Came In From The Cold, for example, his 1960s uh, book is a magnificent uh, achievement, probably the foundation of a, an entire genre. And the movie featuring uh, Richard Burton was equally good. What Le Carre wrote about, of course, was a degree of disillusionment on the part of the secret services. He wrote about spies who no longer believed, but they were serious in their own way. They drank a lot and they were serious perhaps in their lack of belief. We're going to do a show today about spies, um, but I'm not sure that the spy in this book, The Liar, by my guest Benjamin Cunningham, would fit very well into one of those early Le Carre books. Um, he's a, a spy from Czechoslovakia who turned not once but twice. And as I said, he's the subject of uh, uh, Benjamin Cunningham's new book, The Liar. Benjamin is joining us from just outside Barcelona. Benjamin, how serious is the man that you feature in The Liar? Um, uh, a Czech spy diplomat called Carol Kocher. How serious is he? Um, I guess the argument that I made when I was, um, you know, trying to pitch this book to publishers is that, you know, he's not the most important spy of the Cold War. His activities were not the most consequential to the eventual outcome of the Cold War. But my argument of why this person was interesting for a book and, and something we kind of are trying to be a bit cute with in the subtitle of the book um, is that he might be a figure that by taking this journey with him teaches you as much about the Cold War as anybody else. And so uh, certainly he was in sort of life and death situations. Actual people died uh, as, as a result of some encounters that he was in. Um, I don't know that his motives were always um, pure in terms of you know politically pure. So I guess seriousness, um, you know, depends on the definition of seriousness. Um, my argument, as I said, when I was trying to trying to get someone to pay me to write this, is that by taking this trip with this character, which I tried to, um, you know, structure the book as as it's nonfiction, of course, but but with some sort of you know narrative and novel type atmosphere atmospherics, that by taking that trip you could learn quite a lot about the Cold War or actually also 
prompt new questions or new ways of thinking about the Cold War um, by, by, by following him on that journey. So uh, let's follow this man, Karl Kircher, on this journey. He was born in 1934 in Bratislava, now the capital of Slovakia back then was part of Czechoslovakia. Tell me the story of this man in brief. What, what is so interesting about him? Why dedicate a book to him? Why read a book about him? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. I'd say that the, the meat of the book, uh, of the, of the uh, story, takes place. Um, Carl and his wife, Hannah, uh, moved to the United States in 1965. Uh, they are sleeper agents. They essentially moved to the States uh, pretending to be refugees, political seeking political asylum, which they obtain. Um, Carl and, and Hannah proceed to sort of, uh, you know, integrate themselves into American society. Carl goes to... Columbia uh, in New York City, Columbia University, and gets a PhD. Uh, while sort of finishing up in Columbia, um, he gets a job at the CIA. Uh, the CIA during the Cold War, and I assume still is the case, um, you know, was recruiting people from elite Ivy League institutions. Carl had uh, language skills. Carl had uh, apparently some, you know, sort of um, political animus towards the to, towards the the communist uh, side of the Cold War. So he was recruited to the CIA, uh, started working for the CIA in 1973. Um, so an interesting set- year, uh, 1973, of course. Um, is there anything particular about that year that you find intriguing? We did a show um, with Jefferson Morley, uh, conspiracy theorist, really, I think, about the connection between the the JFK assassination and, and, and Nixon, who believes that uh, Watergate was bound up with the CIA's role in the JFK assassination back in the early 70s. Uh-huh. There were many conspiracy theories swirling around, as I guess there are now. Was there a particular significance to the early 70s in the world you're describing, Benjamin? You know, I think there's... Uh, it gets into their personal lives uh, quite a bit, the story. So it's more the atmospherics of the United States in the 70s. Um, I would say, too, in the 70s, the CIA was in a pretty uh, severe crisis. There was um, the Church Commission uh, in in the Senate. Uh, there was also a House committee investigating uh, a little bit later on in the 70s uh, what the CIA had been up to. Um, earlier on, you had had the, uh, I guess it was 73, is it 73, the Chilean coup? Uh, so you have yeah, sort the, of uh, Allende coup. So correct, correct. lots you of spying this... and lots yes. of uh, in the seventies, of course, as a consequence of the nineteen sixties, a lot of sex too. Uh, this guy Kircher with his wife, both very good-looking Czechs, um, they seem to be best known uh, for their use of sex parties in getting to the CIA secrets. Um, is there any truth in this, Benjamin? I mean, w- was it really just one sex party after another? I'd say that I don't think there's truth to the fact that they used the sex parties to get CIA secrets. I think that is something that sort of was an urban myth that floated around for a while. Pretty much everything that I came across um, indicates they just went to sex parties because they liked sex parties. Um so if, in fact, Typical one of the... checks, yeah, well, well <laughs> for those of us who have, um, th- those of us who have read the work of Milan Kundra, this is a, no- this is a story that could have almost come out from uh, Kundra. Correct, right. And so, um, in fact, so one of the, one of the core sources of, of, 
the material for my book were, were declassified files from the STB. The Czechoslovak KGB was the STB. Um, I reviewed something like 30,000 pages of documents uh, that have been declassified. So how, declassified. How, how, um, how, how, how high a level was he? I mean, there, was, there are spies and then there are spies. I mean, we did a show... Um, we did a show with uh, Liz Wheel about Robert Hansen as America's most damaging spy. Uh, her mm-hmm. book, Apply, uh, a, a Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. He wasn't damaging because he was particularly smart. He was damaging because he was so senior within the FBI. How senior did uh, uh, Kirchner find himself as a mole within the CIA? Well, I'd say he wasn't very senior. What was remarkable, though, and I think I, this is in quotes here, he is the only illegal, so a, a foreign agent sent to the United States with the express purpose of penetrating the CIA to ever do it. So uh, actually, I think he wasn't very high. They kind of threw him out into the wilderness and said, you know, what the hell, maybe. Or at least the, that, of what we know, um, correct, Benjamin. Correct. I mean, Only it's... Known. correct, correct, that we know. So they kind of threw him to the wolves and said, hey, if this guy pulls it off, let's see what happens. And he did pull it off. And after he was inside the CIA, Moscow, the KGB, said, hey, who's this guy that's inside the CIA? We don't have many of our own guys inside the CIA. So he became uh, impactful by his placement. So I, it's not, it, it is not, you know, as I began, it is not true to say he is the most uh, damaging uh, spy of the Cold War, the most important spy of the Cold War. Those things are those things are not true. What's remarkable is that he actually started and completed this mission, and then I guess the story itself uh, and some of the encounters along the way, I argue, are um, symbolic or significant of what was going on in the larger Cold War. So is there a, a Le Carre bite here that it was all rotten, that no one believed in anything, that everyone was having sex parties uh, in the 70s and 80s and no one really cared about East or West? Is this one of the conclusions from your book? I would say the conclusion that would fit into, not exactly, but I think there is a, a nihilistic component to it in that um, Carl was a double agent. Eventually, when his downfall occurs, uh, there are at least two other double agents involved in that sort of collision. Um, he's arrested where, in '84, right? That's correct. That's correct. And and almost certainly because another check had been turned by the CIA and informed on him. And then there's at least one other sort of key player, a, 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 a KGB man who was uh, working for the CIA as well. And so what it comes out is sort of just how convoluted and twisted all of this had become by this point. And, and, and in reviewing the documents and the files, which I reviewed, how many, how much these agencies were expending on resources of spying on their own people, spying on their own spies to make sure that they weren't actually spying for the other side. So just this insanity and upside down world um, that it's, it's it's hard to draw any reliable conclusions from and and just the you know trillions of dollars and billions of dollars and and actual decisions that were made based on this sort of you know Alice in Wonderland type of situation so you so it's 
So the book, or you think the book can be read as a critique of the CIA for its wastefulness, for its pointlessness? I think it could be viewed as a critique for of sort of the insanity of the Cold War. It's not, uh, I wouldn't say it's specifically a critique of the CIA. I think it's the total flaw of massive, you know, global intelligence agencies and their natural, you know, their natural proclivity to evolve, you know, uh, out of control and, and in an illogical manner. The, the title of your book about Kirchner is The Liar. Was he a particularly good liar? Was he a, a skilled liar, a convincing liar? He lived in the United States uh, for nearly 20 years um, as a sleeper agent. So I think that speaks to, yes, so I think, yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, he beat a lie detector test to get a job at the CIA, um, you know. So uh, I think the title is also meant to allude to the fact that, I mean, this is just, that's the job, right? I mean, if you're, if you're an intelligence agent, even somebody that's, you know, not a sleeper agent, somebody that's working under agency cover, you're, the, you're pretending to be the cultural attache and you're a, a CIA uh, officer. You lie every single day. What's your job? I'm the cultural attache. Your neighbor asks you, what do you do for a living? I'm a cultural attache at the embassy. So it's just the, it's just the inherent, the, you know, the root of the whole business, which seems obvious, uh, you know, but there's something when you build, when you build, when the foundation is that rotten, uh, you know, it's no, it's no, no surprise you end up uh, with a messy result. Benjamin, you, um, this is a nonfiction book designed to be trusted. You're writing about a lie. You're writing about a very shady man at a very shady time associated with very shady agencies. One of the reviews of the book said that um, you are not very reliable. They didn't feel the account was reliable. Did you ever feel like just turning this into fiction? Uh, I mean, I can speak to that review specifically if you want, which is factually Well, I mean, it's incorrect. not for me to say. I was just intrigued by the publisher's weekly review that found that you're and maybe it's not surprising. It's hard to write truthfully about a liar. Um, so I guess the question is, did I ever think of turning it into fiction or? or, or? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I can address the Publisher Weekly's. Uh, well, you comments. can do that as well. That's fine with me. Okay. So I would say that specifically the example they cite is not what it says in the book. I mean, I can read the quote to you. It specifically says that John Gotti was in jail awaiting trial on a separate, first separate crime. I mean, it's on the page they intentionally didn't read that sentence um so anyway okay well fair um, enough but, uh, but uh, your question the on the issue of fiction on... versus non-fiction of course much of Le Carre's work particularly the early work was based on his own experiences yeah. working within the British Secret Service in yeah. Berlin and Vienna Central Europe after the war yeah so uh, there you know it's tempting to do that because there are times when you kind of reach a dead end and the dots don't quite connect and you can see where it would be easier to just uh, have some other character that would explain things. My intention and in, in, in what I stuck close to throughout the process was to make this factual because I thought, you know, I had access to very interesting materials that were real. And 
this was sort of my primary mode that, you know, it was amazing to me that some of these materials existed, right? And so it was one of these cases where if I could do a good enough job of synthesizing and, and sorting through the real things, it could be the truth is stranger, the truth is better than fiction type of situation. So I think it would have been easier to write a fiction, you know, to take 60% of this and turn it into a novel. That, I think that would have been less work, to be honest. <laughs> Different kind of work, but I think it would have been simpler and the story could have been more, um, you know, had a cleaner beginning, middle and end and conclusion and things like that. Um, but uh, it was a work of nonfiction and that was the goal from the beginning. And, and, I, and in, some, in some cases that caused me to have to sort of stop short and say, you know, there's a couple of things that could have happened here. Um, I can't conclusively say which of these things is the case. Have you ever fancied yourself as a spy? I mean, you you lead a rather romantic life. You're based in Barcelona. You write for The Economist. There's photo of people watching. You look like a character out of a Le Carre book. Um, have you ever had aspirations of working for any secret service yourself? No, 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 no. I, you know, I, I like the writing. That was that photo. A friend of mine's a photographer. We actually were trying. I was just trying to look cool for the book cover. We uh, that we were trying to be Albert Camus there. So, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, but I, I would say that George I, Smiley, of course. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, um, I will say it's a, it's something that's always you know fascinated me in some ways. I think it was you know I was born in 1980. So uh, the, the end of the Cold War was a pretty formative experience for me. I'm, you know, you know, nine, 10, 11, and nine, I was nine years old when the wall came down. I was, um, you know, 11 years old when the Soviet Union collapsed. So I remember being fascinated by that. I, I um, you know, not by any clear plan. I lived in Prague for 10 years. I mean, I moved there because I got a job at a newspaper, but then I married, my wife is from Slovakia. We had a daughter, so I stayed longer than I ever, you know, planned. And so you just sort of, end up absorbing a lot of this stuff um, and, and getting interested in it. And then also just kind of hearing stories, um, not even not even necessarily thrilling stories, but 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 stories from real people about what life was like and things like that. So it, it was sort of a, you know, I guess there was a seed planted at some point and, 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 you know, read spy novels here and there, read, you know, history, studied history, that sort of thing. And then Kind of found myself in a place, and it just sort of, you know, uh, you know, fed the nourished the seed, if 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 you will. We did a show uh, with the photographer, a very well-known American photographer, Arthur Grace, who has a new book of photographs out about. He he lived. He spent some time in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. A very romantic. But what do you think it looked like? I mean, you weren't there, as you said, you were nine or 10 years old when the wall came down in 89. So you never physically experienced a city like Prague or Bratislava. I went to Bratislava in 78 mm. and I was just back there a couple of years ago and I've never seen a place change more dramatically. Prague still looks the same, but this is like Bratislava was so dour, so miserable in the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you kind of uh, even so. I lived in Prague uh, from I don't know 2008 to, or until 2018, and uh, things changed a lot in those ten years, which was well after the Cold War. So you still had sort of old sort of you'd, you'd go in some bar or something like that that hadn't been renovated, uh, and you would sort of get a taste of it. Sometimes when you go to other towns, not the 
towns on the main drag, you get a feeling for it. Sometimes when you're dealing with bureaucracy or something like that, you get a feeling for it. I mean, I've been to other places. I spent some time in, in Serbia, which was, of course, Yugoslavia and a little bit of a different uh, political system than, than the hard, harder line communism of Czechoslovakia, you know, Poland, been to Ukraine, been, was in Belarus a couple of years ago. That's maybe a, you know, that's a pretty extreme. Yeah, I mean, Belarus yeah, is probably obviously. still a, a snapshot of what the Civil War was right. like. We had, um, we had uh, Joe Weisberg on the show. Uh, he's been actually on a couple of times. Uh, right. He's the creator of The Americans, the fictionalized TV series about Russian sleeper spies in America. Do you think there's any possible truth to The Americans series? I mean, you're... Your uh, your book on Carol Kochner sort of touches on life for foreign agents in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I would just to, just a quick sidebar. I mean, I actually I'm familiar with the show and I've never watched the show. Um, I intentionally uh, did not watch the show as you know I was sort of this project was in development for a while. Um, you know, pitching to publishers and I wrote an article years ago that was kind of the first step in the process and I. Just was wary of of then subconsciously you know watching the show which i definitely planned to watch and then be writing in you know scenes from the americans accidentally into my own book so i haven't seen the show i do i think that that hat i know that i mean it's a fictional show i think there is some um the idea came from some latvian spies i, I think they were that um that were at least the seed of the idea that that there was some you know latvia was part of the soviet union of course and that there was some there was some ruse to try and get, uh, you know, people trained from, you know, from teenagers to get into, to infiltrate the U.S. I don't think it ever really, the real version never got off the ground nearly as well as, as, as I understand, you know, the story, the, the series, I think, went on for a number of years. So I think, and I think Joe uh, worked for the CIA for a while, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Joe did work for the CIA yeah. and one of a particularly so, successful or happy period in his life. He talks about <laughs> it, he writes about it. In his book, let's go uh, go back briefly to Milan Kundera, the great Czech yeah. writer. Yeah, um, there have been lots of rumors and accusations that he himself was involved in some undercover operations for the Czechs when he emigrated to France. In your studies of the liar, in your research on Kirchner, did the Czech Secret Service? Did they make every effort to track down and perhaps compromise lots of checks overseas to work for their agency? I mean, obviously, so, I, I don't. It's not for you to say whether or not you believe that 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 Kundera was somehow implicated. But I, I'm curious as to the way in which they reached out to many checks to work for their agency. I'd say first of all, I think the. the Again, I can't speak to the, the, the total veracity of the Kundera thing. I think the primary allegation of Kundera is that when he was a student in Prague, he informed on somebody in his dormitory who then was arrested, a German or something like that. That, mm. he, that he, I think that's the main, uh, rather than him Rest, being an agent yeah. abroad. But um, yeah, the, the other answer is correct. Yes. Uh, so Carl was under tremendous pressure when he first got there. In, fa in fact, that's the first thing they wanted from him. And the thing that they really thought he was capable of doing. I don't think they ever thought he was really going to penetrate the CIA. They thought he was going to go to New York and he would at least inform on a bunch of Czechs that were living in New York. He worked for a while with Radio Free Europe, which um, had an office in New York and at that time was directly supervised by the CIA, since been spun off and is slightly 
managed differently, but was a direct arm of the CIA in uh, in the 60s and into the early 70s. So, uh, and there's all these memos from uh, Prague Central, if you will, to, uh, you know, trying to get Carl to inform on people and complaining that he didn't. So, you know, the documentation actually indicates them pressuring him to tell him what's going on with Czech emigres, try to flip Czech emigres, go to Radio Free Europe and tell, tell them what's going on at Radio Free Europe among Czech emigres. And at least in this instance, um, you know, Carl seems to have, you know, behaved somewhat honorably. I think it was perhaps because he didn't quite, you know, he didn't quite know if he would need those friends in America some, some other time or something like that. I'm not sure his reason for informing on them, you know, his motives were pure, but he did, he was reluctant to inform on them. But the, the pattern is absolutely clear. They were looking, the, the Czechoslovak intelligence and by proxy the Ru and Russian intelligence, Soviet intelligence wanted information on anybody that was, you know, from the diaspora that might be uh, um, either working against them or potentially an ally, you know, uh, an underground ally in some future date. Benjamin, let's end with his final act. His final act was not his arrest in 1984 as a supposed salacious swinging spy, as some people in the media suggested. In the end, he went to jail and then he got swapped, of all people, for Nathan Sharansky. It's a remarkable swap. What, what happened here? And, and how did he live out the rest of his life? Is he still alive? He is still alive. He's uh, he's going to turn 89, I think, next in September. Uh, Did you yeah. get a chance to talk to him? Yeah, yeah, I've met him quite a bit. He's quoted uh, extensively in the book. Interviewed him many, many hours, uh, dozens of hours, and his wife as well. Um, more, more Carl. His wife was a bit uh, more reluctant to speak. But um, the 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 final act there is is interesting. So Carl gets arrested, um, and he is uh, interrogated by both the FBI and the CIA. And there's sort of a clashing of interest there. The CIA is primarily interested in finding out what he, uh, what kind of secrets he turned over. The FBI wants to, it's uh, the Reagan administration. They want to prosecute spies. You know, they want to have uh, convictions. Uh, or they, don't, they want to collect evidence so that the, uh, you know, the district attorney can, uh, uh, the Justice Department can prosecute spies and get convictions. Um, the CIA offers Carl a deal, essentially tell us everything you did and we'll let you go uh, or we won't you know you'll be, we won't use it against you he tells them a bunch of stuff the fbi then steps in and tries to use that to prosecute him and so there's this sort of messy court battle uh where they're trying to prosecute him but a lot of the evidence is not admissible and that the prosecutor the lead prosecutor the the uh, the attorney the district attorney for the southern district of new york at the time was rudolph giuliani uh of in mm, more recent heard of him Benjamin. yes that's correct and so what happens is Carl ends up going to jail uh, and there's a lot of just legal stuff happening for a long time. He's in jail for uh, close to 18 months. Uh, it's like 16 months or something like that. No trial, you know, motions on, on they're trying to compel his wife to testify against him. They're holding her in contempt of court. Um, just a long drawn out process. They're having trouble prosecuting him is the story. Basically um, they don't, they can't use the evidence they have. And Carl actually goes to his defense attorney uh, and I've spoken to this man. There's documents to this. Uh, Robert Fearer is his name. He's an American attorney. Um, writes him a letter, asks Robert Fearer to go to Prague with the letter. And the letter suggests that they offer to trade Sharansky for him. And 
that's what happens. Basically, um, Sharansky was this, you know, high profile, you know, dissident that was in the gulag for years and um, was a real priority for the Reagan administration right. and sort of religious freedom grounds and and human rights grounds. And he was an agi big agitator in the in the best in the best it sense of the word. It sounds to me like it was a trade that benefited the West in the sense that Sharansky is a much heavier hitter than Kirchner. Is it possible that um, he knew more than? We know. Is it possible that um, they wanted him back to debrief him for one reason or another? I, I, I mean, I guess anything is possible. I went through a lot of files. I guess they could have removed files. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's what happened. I think essentially the problem was such an embarrassment uh, that they didn't know what else to do. They were going to have to turn him loose. Is probably what was going to happen. Why did the Russians another. give up Sharansky? It was a fairly I think he significant. Was a problem. I think he bigger. was a problem. For, I, I, you're correct. You're correct. Um, I think he was a problem for them too, uh, a, a PR problem. And uh, Reagan was making a big deal about, uh, you know, this was a, this was a, this was a, um, you know, an international sort of media uh, thing. They threw I mean, in. It made uh, Reagan look good. Did did Carl go back to Prague to acclaim? I think um, you note in the book that um, he became somewhat of a, a folk hero back in Prague in Czech Republic. Yeah. He hoped to be a, a folk hero, um, and I think one of the one of the big takeaways of the book or the character. I think I want to emphasize. I think this is the story. The book itself, I think, is pretty character driven. Um, you know, the details are about the people, uh, and I think he's a guy that didn't fit in anywhere. You know, if I can just if just briefly, he didn't fit in in communist Czechoslovakia. He was an ambitious, intelligent guy with goals. That kind of wasn't what was going on in the 50s and 60s. He moved to the States, kind of had some success, got a PhD, uh, you know, semi, you know, making gains in a meritocracy, um, got into the CIA, kind of did all right there, kind of, you know, uh, didn't really accelerate his career after that very much further, kind of, you know, top, you know, hit the his ceiling in the States, kind of didn't, you know, fit in completely there. Then got arrested, got traded back, thought he was going to go back to acclaim. It was still communist, uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, but he had been in the States for 20 years, so they kind of didn't trust him. Uh, a couple years later, communism ended, and then they definitely didn't, you know, then he was definitely right. a, a little so, so bit I take all this. So finally, uh, Benjamin, yeah. you've dedicated a lot of time of your life to this. Ultimately, so what? Who cares? So what? Who cares about this person? I mean, convince the... me that this matters, that it's just an, that, that, that it's worth... I, 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 the book is interesting and the story is interesting. It's unusual, but but why should we really care? It seems like a, a minor event in the history of the Cold War. So many books have been written about how rotten and corrupt both sides were. What does this yep. teach us that we didn't already know in any way? So what? It, first of all, I would say that, uh, at least from my perspective, unrelated to my book, um, you know, the movies and the uh, uh, the books and the documentaries that tend to teach me the most about a time period or history are not the one. It's not I, I don't learn the most from the Cold War by reading Richard Nixon's autobiography. I don't um, you know, it's well, no one's the, suggesting. Well, you exactly. Read I understand. Richard Nixon's or biography Henry, to autobiography Henry, to learn Henry about Kissinger's Henry Kissinger's memoirs or something like that. So what 
what to me tells the story of history is the details, is a story you can follow from start to finish. What I was able to do here is document, I, there's uh, juvenile reports of him, police reports from him when he's a child, uh, descriptions of his childhood upbringing, his parents, uh, you know, psychological profiles of the guy from declassified files when they, when they decided to deploy him abroad, reports on him throughout the years, over the course of, you know, 50 or 60 years, real stuff, stuff that you cannot, uh, that, that is, I've only seen in novels. So um, there may be other ones that are as comprehensive. I have not seen them though. So my argument is, is that you can learn uh, the most, the maximum about a period with a snapshot of a detailed snapshot rather than, you know, the 30,000 foot view. And that's what I think this does. And I think um, if you get into the book, if you read the book, it's delivered in a, in a narrative, not in a, not in a proof, hey, look, this is the research I've done and I'm listing facts and dates and quotes. It's a narrative. And so I think you, I hope, and I think you're able to, to feel a bit of this, this atmospherics and you know, hone in on color and detail and, and, and hyper-focus on what was happening on the street level, on the ground, in somebody's head. Um, and that, I think, is what makes the book, distinguishes the book from others. Well, that's the truth on The Liar, Benjamin Cunningham's new book. It's just out. Very interesting book. Very interesting moments in history. Congratulations, Benjamin, on that. What other spy novels do you like? I mentioned Le Carre. I don't want to keep on going on about him. Everyone knows about him. Are there other books on the Cold War or on the spy business that you find particularly interesting? One, one, one novelist from around the same period that I like also from the UK, Len Dayton, uh, mm -hmm. had, uh, quite, had some nice films with Michael Caine that were spun off of that too. He's got a bit of a different style. I think it's, I would almost say, a little more literary uh, in, in his presentation, but has that you think same... Len Dayton is more literary than Le Carre? Well, I think it's it's more. I think there's more dialogue driven. I think maybe it's. Mm. Uh, yeah, I do. I would say yes, I do. So, um, but it has that grit. It has that 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 haze. That sort of late Cold War haze. One one I do, a couple. One I do have. This is more of a history book. I brought it out here. Uh, there's uh, that really I found interesting. This a cold, the Cold War, a world history. Uh, it's by a historian based at Harvard now, Aud Arna Vestad. Norwegian man, I'm kind of moving it on the camera in the wrong way. Mm. Um, really interesting in that it 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 does the opposite of what I said. You should, why you should read my book? It's even a bigger picture. It, it it looks at the Cold War as a global phenomenon. I think you uh, you not maybe not you. I tend to think of Europe or maybe some some other elements. The you know Vietnam War under the the umbrella of a Cold War struggle. This really looks at sort of all the spaces in between. He's got a very interesting argument that. You know, the Cold War ended at different times in different ways in different places around the world is maybe the simplest example, not to go too far into the book. 1979, the Shah of Iran is overthrown. That's basically a Cold War puppet of the, of the United States, puppet regime that collapses. He's not overthrown by communists, overthrown by a theocracy, not really one side beating the other side. Certainly maybe a loss for the United States, but... United, uh, the Soviet Union was not uh, a, a direct ally of the, of the Ayatollah at the time. So that's one that I think puts a little bit of a different spin or an interesting uh, perspective on the Cold War. And then one other book, you know, you, you kind of mentioned to maybe think of some books. 
and this goes back to my um, my point about honing in on a on a detail, which I think is the strain. This is one that I thought of not really on the same topic, but I'm again on the camera. Night Train, Nick Tashis. So Nick Tashis was a was a, died a few years ago, mostly a music writer mm. uh, based in New York. His book's about Sonny Liston, a uh, famous boxer, um, kind of the the Mike Tyson of his day, kind of the, you know, viewed as a rogue sort of criminal type, you know, violent type of guy. Um, famously, uh, he lost to Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, he was still called at the same time. And the book is really interesting in that, um, you know, everyone knows stuff about Muhammad Ali, right? rightfully so, sort of a hero of the 20th century, right? And But Sonny Liston, reading a book about Sonny Liston, the guy who, he, uh, you learn quite a lot about, say, the mid-20th century United States. I'd say more than reading about Muhammad Ali. The guy was born to sharecropper parents in Arkansas. He moved to St. Louis, lived in a segregated neighborhood, kind of got involved with crime, then kind of got involved with boxing and the mafia. So sort of a, a, a story that's not the most important guy here again, but sort of by taking that journey with this semi-peripheral character, you actually learn quite a lot about society in, 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 